If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. If I say prohibition, I'll bet that the first thing that springs to mind is a Chicago speakeasy with flappers and gangsters sipping on bathtub gin. Or perhaps puritanical Americans smashing up the local saloon. But as Mark Lawrence Schrad argues in his new book, Smashing the Liquor Machine, there was a lot more to the story of Prohibition. As he told me on today's podcast, campaigns to ban alcohol were found across the globe in the 19th and 20th centuries and were often motivated by much more progressive agendas than we might first assume. So thank you so much for joining me, Mark, to talk about your new book, Smashing the Liquor Machine. In the book's introduction, there's a subtitle, isn't there, which is Everything You Know About Prohibition is Wrong. I think that's a good place to start. How so? Well, it's uh, the conventional histories that we have about prohibition and prohibitionism um, are just based so much more on what we think should be true rather than what is actually true. It's got that, that truthiness feel to it. Um, and so here in the United States, you know, if you want an, an explanation, you know, sort of the conventional explanation for, for prohibitionism is it was white, rural, evangelical, Bible-thrumping Protestants who were hell-bent on telling you what you can and can't drink, taking away your freedom and liberty to drink and so on. And so, that seems so, nowadays especially, it seems so anathema to our own self-image uh, as freedom-loving individuals and what a horrible thing, so that we can't really wrap our minds around the history of it today. And that, I think, is, is part of, you know, was, was sort of the motivation behind it. It kind of operates on two tracks. One is trying to figure out what happened way back when, but also trying to figure out why we cannot and sort of refuse to come to terms with that history and instead contort it and distort it in all these these different ways. So in the book, you look not only at America, you look at uh, temperance and prohibition movements across the globe. Let's start with America, though, actually, and then we can perhaps move beyond it. Before we go any further, what can you tell us about the U.S. alcohol industry at the time and the impact that this this liquor machine of your title was having on society when temperance movements really caught fire? Right, and I think you you hit right there at the the very sort of essence of the book, which is that uh, 
you know, one of the problems that we have is that we've built this narrative that temperance and prohibition was about alcohol, was about the stuff that's in the bottle, that they were enemies of alcohol, they were enemies of drinkers. But in, in reality, they were against the industry. They were against what they called the liquor traffic. That's the, the phrase that they always use. The liquor traffic is the thing that we're against. And they would say very clearly, they would say, um, you know, I'm not against your right to drink. I'm not against taking away. I'm against trafficking in an illegal substance or a highly addictive substance that would get people hooked on, uh, you know, the, the substance and then just suck them dry. It's, it's a, a small word, but it makes all the difference, right? Because the thing in the bottle is different from the trafficking, right? You know, I could be against human trafficking that does not make me against human beings. Those are very different things. One is an, an innocuous substance. The other is the, the process of making money. It's, it's uh, predatory capitalism, and that's what they were actually against. And so, you know, it, 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 we shouldn't have to contort our histories to understand why you know, the crowning achievement of prohibition happened during the progressive era, right? It was a fundamentally progressive move to rein in the excesses of predatory capitalism that would get people addicted for profit, kind of like the, the opioid epidemic that we have nowadays, you know? So, so what it looked like in the United States in particular, especially in the sort of lead up to the 18th Amendment, was an entire industry that was ever more predatory. Bars were being owned by breweries, there was very little regulation. And so it, it, it also requires that we don't, you know, properly understanding the history requires that we don't just take what we think we know about drinking and bars and, uh, and, and so on, and just kind of projecting it backwards and saying, well, it used to be called a saloon and we you know, had these, these sorts of things. Later in the book, I talk about it as the, the Ted Danson effect because we had you know, actor Ted Danson, this, this uh, show called Cheers, uh, where you know, the, the bartender is your friend. He's there to... You know, you, you tell him your troubles. He offers you a beer, and if you've had too much, they pack you away in a in a in a taxi and send you home. There was none of that back then. You know, the the idea that the the bartender was your friend, it was it was crazy. The bartender was the he was the local pawnbroker. He was you know usually he ran the whorehouse. Uh, you know, he was there to take everything that you had, and when you had nothing left, kick you out the door. Right? You know, he didn't really care much about you, and and so. The one anecdote that really kind of blew my mind, that kind of hammered home this point that, hey, you know, when we're talking about saloon history, we're not talking about uh, contemporary, well-regulated pubs and, and, and bars, was the anecdote of, of Carrie Nation. She's sort of this avatar of prohibitionism and temperance, this white Kansas evangelical, you know, Bible thumper who walked into these saloons and smashed them up. And she was very clear why she was doing it because they were operating illegally and making money in opposition to the law. Uh, but the thing that, that struck it home to me is that her saloon smashings, and so sending the drunks to flight and all that sort of stuff, she usually did that between 7.30 and 8 o'clock in the morning. You know, it wasn't at night that these guys were drinking. They were there all through the night. They were drinking through the next morning. Um, you know, and, and so that just kind of blew my mind that, you know, nowadays, you know, to have a bar that's open before noon seems crazy, you know, but the idea that they were slinging liquor, doing, you know, great business at seven or eight in the morning, uh, just kind of blew my mind at that. So why do you think that we have got this so wrong? Why do you think that any idea of prohibition as a progressive idea has been lost and replaced with this idea of it being reactionary, uh, puritanical, crazy even, as you say? 
Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think part of it is that, you know, it's it's our self image. It's sort of the psychology of othering. Let's put it that way, right? We are our, our self image is built upon who we are not. Right. So we fought a cold war against the Soviet Union, so we're not communist, and we fought World War II against. Uh, Hitler, so we're not fascist, right? And so we're freedom-loving, all this stuff. And so it, it, that's just kind of our, our own self-image. And so when it comes to looking in our own history at this particular element of temperance and prohibitionism, it seems so illiberal in many ways, right? So we have to come to terms with it, and we have to concoct all of these stories as to how this could possibly have happened. And so, so much of it is wrapped up in sort of mythology and, and conspiracy theories, it's kind of crazy when you when you look at it, right? So some of the, for, for example, you know, one of the, my favorite ones is that, uh, you know, prohibition was, was put over on the American people. It was a conspiracy while the boys were out fighting in World War I, right? It's like, oh, okay. Well, one, women didn't have the vote because the 19th Amendment came after the 18th Amendment. So you can't really blame women for that. And two, there's no, you know, indication that the, the, Three million Americans who were in Europe fighting in World War One were any more or less wet or dry than than the men who stayed behind, right? And it wasn't like they missed some sort of referendum. It wasn't like a that they, there was a vote that we had and and it kind of moved on. No, this was like part of this large process. And then all these other explanations, right? You know, they say, well, it was about small groups, reactionary groups like the Ku Klux Klan, sort of disciplining African Americans and their leisure and taking that away. And it's like, okay, but the KKK came about in 1907, but most of the country, states of the American South were already dry by then, and their biggest proponents were African Americans. So that that doesn't make any sense, you know. And then they say, "Well, it was this this wartime frenzy, you know, that everybody was whipped up into this anti-German, anti-beer sentiment." I was like, "Okay, well, but the Congress that passed prohibition with overwhelming supermajorities in the United States." were elected in 1916 before the United States got involved in World War 1 in 1917. So none of this makes any sense. It's like we've concocted all these conspiracies, you know, to distract us from the facts that are are fairly clear that this was a progressive movement to rein in not your liberty to drink, which was kind of a, a John Stuart Mill argument going way way back. Uh, but uh, but you know to rein in the excesses of predatory capitalism to say that if you are a a liquor seller, whether that means you're, you know, a, a brewer, a distiller, or a, a barkeeper, that you shouldn't be making money off of other people's addictions and inebriations. So, if we do return to the historical record as you have done here, what do we find? What kind of people do we see becoming involved in the prohibition movement, and what are some of their motivations? It, it took me a long time, you know, to to look all around the globe and and see what's. Uh, what was happening, right? So we have this, uh, again, I guess maybe a, a way to to pose this would be to say, okay, well, you know, we have the conventional wisdom about what causes temperance and prohibitionism in the United States, right? We think we know what it is. But my approach, I come at this, I'm a political scientist. I'm not a, a historian by training. And so a lot of the research, sort of the design of the book is is based around, okay, how do we make sure that this claim of causation of you know what caused temperance and prohibitionism, if, if that's true, if it was Midwestern Bible thumping evangelical Protestants, that's all well and good. But that should be something that is more generalizable outside of a single case study. So again, in political science, we talk about well, if we want to make sure that our inferences are correct, we take a broader sample of cases, which is what we do in polling data. And so I was like, okay, well, let's 
take the American case study and we'll just put it over there for a while, right? Just put it on the shelf. That's just one case study, right? But there are a whole lot of other case studies. There are a dozen other countries around the globe that instituted prohibition all at about the same time. And let's figure out what they're all about, right? And so I start the book and, and look kind of going empire by empire around the globe, starting with the first prohibition country, which was Russia, Imperial Russia. Not a lot of Midwestern Bible-thumping evangelical Protestants in Russia, right? And, but they were the first. So if that's your explanation, you're going to have to accommodate for all these different experiences. And so I was like, okay, well, that doesn't explain it. Let's, let's figure out what's going on in Russia. And so in Russia, you have, you know, the, the temperance movement was banned by the, by the czar and the imperial powers that be because the empire had a monopoly on vodka. And they, one third of all the power and, and wealth of the great Russian empire came from selling vodka to their own people. Right. They found out very quickly that if everybody sobers up, they have no money and the entire thing goes goes bankrupt. Um, and so temperance, there was sort of an underground temperance movement with Leo Tolstoy. And then eventually anybody who was against the czar, including guys like Vladimir Lenin and 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 uh, and Leon Trotsky and so on, tended to be temperance guys, tended to be prohibitionists because they were against, not against taking a drink, but against this predatory capitalism. This is how the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And they were very, very clear about this. So you find that sort of dynamic in, in Russia. And then I look at Sweden, I look at Belgium and look at sort of social Democrats and same sort of arguments. And then you know, look at, at the German empire, Austro-Hungarian empire, same dynamic, got three chapters on the British empire, same sort of dynamics that these great empires were built upon selling, well, I guess in some cases, opium to China, but also selling liquor to uh, you know, the, the folks in India uh, selling booze in, in South Africa, uh, you know, selling alcohol in Canada and, and in the United States. That was the mechanism of, of uh, you know, imperialism in, in, in many ways. And so when you recognize that, you start to see that the movement, you know, for temperance and prohibitionism was an anti-colonial, it was an anti-imperial and again, very progressive movement all around the globe, right? And so that was that was kind of was like, oh, okay, this is completely different from what I'm being told from this single case study in the United States tells me one thing, but these dozen or so case studies in the rest of the globe paint a completely different picture. I just want to pick up on your point there about um, alcohol in the British Empire and the connection that you draw between alcohol and imperialism. Do you see that as an intentional connection that alcohol was weaponized um, during colonialism, or do you see that as a an accidental offshoot of imperialism? Yeah, I, I think you know. I don't think it was intentional. I think it, it led to some particular. I think it, what it was ultimately was sort of the pursuit of profit, right? And that's ultimately what imperialism, colonialism is about. And it just seemed to be the most profitable substance. You could get natives drunk. You could take away their rubber. You could take away their ivory if you're in Africa. You could take away your, their furs in, uh, you know, in North America. It was a very effective weapon. And what you see, especially when it comes to sort of fur traders in, in North America and in the United States, is that the arguments were being made by people that said, hey, if, if we don't get these Native Americans drunk on the, on the Northern frontier, well, then you're going to have these others who are going to do it. And, and the Native Americans are going to go to uh, you know, the, the British traders out of Canada, or they're going to, the French Canadian traders, or the, the Spanish traders, they're the ones who have liquor. And if we say that we're not going to deal liquor with them, they're just going to find it some other way. So we might as well take advantage of them because somebody else is going to take advantage of them. And so there's kind of self-justifying arguments. But I think ultimately it was just about the pursuit of, of gains, the pursuit of profits, and uh, it became a very, very effective means of doing that. 
Another movement that you see temperance linked to is the campaign for the abolition of slavery. Can you explain the connection that people drew between those two movements? The book, as I originally proposed it, was just supposed to be global in nature. It, wasn't, it was supposed to be like eight chapters about the rest of the world, and then maybe ni- like a nice, tidy little one-chapter thing on the United States. Uh, you know, Maybe eight or nine chapters. Not the gargantuan thing that it ended up being. Um, and so I, I presented my research about what temperance and prohibitionism looks like in the rest of the world. It's about anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism. It's about um, nationalism. It's about protecting our people against sort of the, the predations of the other, you know, whether those the other is British Empire, the you know, the United States, whether it's, you know, the czar and so on. And so I was given this presentation, and I remember it very, very clearly in, in my department. And one of my colleagues, uh, Jennifer Dixon, she does great work on uh, on Turkey and the politics of the past and and uh, and all sorts of things. And she said, okay, she says, if I buy your thesis that temperance and prohibitionism was really about indigenous disempowered communities uh, protecting themselves against predatory capitalism. Uh, she says, where, where are the Native Americans in your story? Where are they? And I was like, ah, you got me. They're not there. Uh, and that, end, that added two more years and, and like nine more chapters to the book right there. Because, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, let's look at American history through this lens. And suddenly you find that these disempowered communities, beginning with the Native Americans, are the strongest proponents of prohibition, starting from the very beginning, starting even from you know before the the beginning of our our country, as sort of an independent republic, you had Native Americans railing against this liquor traffic because they saw it was uh, the, this predatory capitalism, and so you know I've got a couple chapters on, on Native Americans, and then when it comes to the traditional stories that we tell about the origins of temperance in the United States from the 1820s, the same people who were raising the alarm about sort of the predatory capitalism of of the liquor trade were abolitionists. They talked about them as philanthropists, right? They're lovers of humanity, that, uh, you know, they, these are people who are interested in promoting all rights, human rights, women's rights, suffragism. And so all these abolitionists, whether they were free white abolitionists or, or African-Americans like uh, Frederick Douglass, tended to be very vocal on this question of the liquor traffic. As, and they saw it as being the same sort of slavery, especially after you know, the Civil War. You ended up having people like, like Frederick Douglass arguing that we have to have prohibition because it, would, you know, uh, it doesn't make sense to take the chains of bondage of all these millions of African Americans and take them out of the hands of the white slave owner and then just give those same chains over to the white tavern keeper. You know, it was the same sort of bondage. And they said, you know, if, if we're really going to liberate ourselves, we have to liberate ourselves from, from addiction. And if we're going to achieve sort of a, a, a truer sense of freedom, we have to remove these impediments that are keeping us down. And those were something that was uh, applicable not only to African-American communities, but to white communities as well. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But if you look at our founding documents, if you look at the Constitution, there's no right to buy anything. There's not a right to go drinking at a bar. There's not a right to go uh, get a haircut. But those are things that people say, you know, that's an infringement upon my constitutional rights that I can't get these sorts of things. It's like, no, that's not. Those are those are economic liberties that has nothing to do with your rights as a, as a citizen. I think a lot of people will be surprised to learn about the connections between Native American communities and prohibition. I wonder if you could give some examples of how this actually played out in reality, of how Native American people showed opposition to alcohol and and backed temperance. 
I'll give you a quick anecdote, and it's it's one that again, it's another one of these things that just kind of kind of blew my mind. Um, I grew up in uh, the Quad Cities, Iowa, Illinois, right on the the Mississippi River. Um, not really known for much, uh, but it is the hometown of uh, Chief Blackhawk, who was a, a chief uh, of the the, the Sauk and Fox tribe uh, before colonization and, and all that. And so we've got, you know, we've got sports teams named after him. We've got the Chicago Blackhawks are named all these sorts of things. Blackhawk helicopters, all from the same guy, right? And he was seen as this fierce Native American warrior. Growing up in that area, we went to see Salkadok. As a little kid, we would go and tour the Native American, you know, the, the preserves. This is where, you know, the, the Native American town was. And then he had these, these wars. And we're never really told, like, what started these wars. And it was always kind of this suggestion of, well... They were they were savages, right? Who knows what was going through their heads to to start a war against uh, you know sort of the white colonization? But again, if you go back to the original sources, Black Hawk he wrote an autobiography, actually the first autobiography written by a, a Native American bestseller, and he was very clear as to what started this war: is that you had these white settlers coming in, squatting on their lands, taking their their crops and so on, in opposition to the the treaties that had been signed. But the thing that set him off and was over the top was that there was one white settler in, in particular. Uh, his name was uh, Josiah Vandruff. And he even has a, you know, in, in my hometown, there's an island named after him. It's called Vandruff's Island. And I had no idea why, who this guy was. And he refused to stop selling liquor to the Native American tribes, right? And so, so Black Hawk pled with him. He was very accommodating to the settlers, you know, they tried to cohabitate and he says like, okay, we can get along just fine. Just don't sell liquor to my people and don't take their furs from them and don't barter with them. And everybody seemed to be okay with that, except for this one guy who ended up building an entire tavern, calling the Sauk and Fox tribesmen to his tavern. And eventually after, you know, complaining to the American military garrison that was nearby and everything and got no redress for, for these grievances, uh, eventually Black Hawk takes a, a band of tribesmen over to Vandruff's tavern and smashes it, smashes all the casks, smashes all the liquor, and then gets back in their canoes and goes back home. And so it was very clear that he was against, you know, not against settlement. He wasn't against, you know, uh, white people who were around him. It was against the people who were getting his people drunk. As, you know, the entire, I guess, I don't want to go through the whole story, but uh, eventually Vandruff, instead of talking to uh, sort of the local military installations that are there. He goes overland to the governor of Illinois and concocts this whole story about how these uh, native savages are threatening his life and all these horrible, horrible things. And the governor, um, you know, without the authorization of the American government, by the way, uh, essentially raises a militia and goes to war against this. And that's the start of the Black Hawk War. It started over alcohol. And if actually, if you go back through most of uh, American history with all these bloody... Indian Wars, pretty much every one of them starts with alcohol in some way. Starts with somebody getting Native Americans drunk, taking advantage of them, taking their their food, their clothing, whatever, and then sort of retortions back and forth, you know, eye for an eye. And then the next thing you know, tens of hundreds or maybe even thousands of people are dead, right? And so incredibly, a lot of those cases of, you know, we see them as, as Indian Wars were temperance wars. They were pro prohibition wars. But since they happened to non-white Americans outside the usual purview of our white prohibition history, we don't think about it in those terms and we don't get told that it's in those terms. And are there any comparable stories to that that you found in the British imperial context? Oh, sure. Yeah. The, the British Empire is full of these, uh, you know, and, and so yeah, I've got three chapters on, on Britain. Uh, one starts with sort of within the British Isles and you start to see the, um, 
you know, sort of in Ireland, uh, you know, the, the whole rallying cry of Ireland sober, Ireland free, that the idea was that we have to uh, rebel against, uh, you know, the United Irishmen going back to this, you know, 1790s, we're, we're saying that we have to rebel against all this British liquor that's being poured down our throats. That's the only way we can make ourselves free is not to have our profits being funneled off to London, to the, the, uh, the drink makers there. Uh, same sort of thing. I've got another chapter on South Africa and, and uh, Bechuana land, in particular in Botswana, present day Botswana. Same sort of dynamics. You know, it was the, the, the white people who were bringing the liquor, you know, uh, to people who had no history of these mind bending distilled whiskeys and gins and, and, and liquors of an, a potency that was just far beyond anything sort of uh, indigenous people could deal with. And then you have a lot of the native opposition was based upon that same sort of sort of temperance sentiment. Uh, and then I've got another chapter all on, on sort of the, the, you know, the, the British Raj in India and centered around Gandhi and, and, uh, and his whole sort of non-cooperation movement. But it was the same sort of thing. If we want the British out of our country and out of our affairs, we have to make sure we have to hit it, the pillars of state finance, right? And so we have to make sure that they're not making their money at our expense. Uh, and so that was seen as not only the uplift of the native community, the indigenous population, that we're not stupefying ourselves all day with, with alcohol, but also it was a, a sort of a revolutionary movement uh, against sort of this imperial power. If we're tying temperance into progressive movements, something else that you look at is its connections to women's rights and the fight for women's suffrage. Can you explain that a little bit more? While temperance's links to Native American disenfranchised minorities and, and African-American disenfranchised minorities might be news. The usual story that we're told is that it was it was white evangelical women, right? That it had something to do with, uh, with women's rights. It had something to do, you know, the, the usual story that we're told is that it was women, obviously, uh, in the United States were disempowered, you know, legally disenfranchised, could not vote, obviously, but also had no standing before a court, could not have their own independence finances uh, and all these sorts of things. So they're, they're very much tied to their husbands and their husbands' behaviors. And so you couldn't get a job on your own, couldn't make money on your own oftentimes. And so if your husband were suddenly taken in to the local tavern and you know fall vic falls victim to the allure of, of liquor, then you're the one who's going to have to pay, and not even dealing with you know the the, the physical manifestations and and domestic violence and everything that comes with that. If you married wrong, quote unquote, right, you know, or if you married a, a, a guy who liked to drink, it was going to be a very very rough life for you, and there really wasn't much that you could do about it. And so, a lot of in the United States, in particular, the suffragist movement was born of temperance, right? In, in, so you had these temperance organizations beginning in the 1820s through the 1850s in particular, um, where women started to, uh, you know, who had no political activity or, or history or experience, start to gain experience on, on what is it like to run a newspaper? What is it like to organize protests and, and, and so on? Um, and so most of the people who end up spearheading sort of the women's rights movement in the United States, you know, sort of your... Um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton's and, and Susan B. Anthony's and so on, they start in temperance, right? They start with that temperance organization um, and start to recognize that, hey, we're not going to be able to get rid of this scourge and this, this problem and this inequality for women um, unless we get the right to vote. Uh, and that was true for, you know, for, for, for suffragists 
the ones that we know very, very well, but also, you know, sort of the temperance activists. And, and again, the whole book starts with Carrie Nation, the saloon smasher. And we've, you know, concocted all these great stories about, you know, what was her real motivation? Was it menopause? Was it that she's crazy? All these sorts of things. She said it very clearly. If people ask her, why did you smash up all these saloons? And she said, you wouldn't give me the vote. So I had to use a rock. Fairly cut and dry. But you don't have to be crazy to go after the thing that's poisoning your community and poisoning your family. How do you think that we should alter our image of temperance campaigners? I hope that we we stop vilifying them, you know, and, and seeing them as somehow, you know, these these enemies of freedom and these enemies of liberty, because they weren't, right? You know, in many cases, they are the people that we celebrate as the the great champions of freedom. So looking out at, through American history, you see that, you know, the, the greats proponents of temperance and prohibitionism were, were people like George Washington and, and Thomas Jefferson and, and Abraham Lincoln and, and Theodore Roosevelt. And those are the four people whose faces we chiseled into Mount Rushmore, right? Those are our most American of Americans for good and for ill. They are not some sort of uh, anathema. Those are, you know, and they're not sort of some anti-freedom cabal. Those are the people who were pushing for the removal of this barrier that would allow people to achieve a greater freedom in their own understandings and and, uh, and greater liberty that way. So I, I hope that we just stop vilifying them and treating them as some sort of aberration from our past and start to understand temperance not as a bad thing, but as part and parcel of that, that larger, not only national movement in the United States, but international movement of uh, of greater liberty, of greater human rights. Um, so, you know, uh, Frederick Douglass had this famous line that all great reforms go together. And by that, he meant temperance and suffragism and abolitionism. All of them were about expanding human freedom rather than constraining it. So after looking back at all of this history and reframing the story of prohibition, do you think that prohibition could ever make a comeback? I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't think, you know, it it, it comes up in some context, you know, it, it comes up in terms of our contemporary political rhetoric that uh, it's like a, a cudgel. It's a one word term that you can use to apply to anything you don't like, uh, to any government program you don't like um, that conceivably impringes upon individual freedom. Um, you know, and it just shuts down all debate, right? You know, so that could be you know anti-maskers, anti-vaccine people say, well, this is like prohibition, right? This is an impingement upon my freedom. People talking about abortion rights, you know, they say, well, you know, restrictions on abortions are against my freedom, right? And it's it's not even partisan, right? Everybody anti-gun rights or or uh, you know, we we had restrictions on you know, in New York City on on soda. Right. Oh, this this tyranny. Right, and and it also has that sense in it that it's this, this kind of teleology that if I call it prohibition, not only is it a bad program, but it's also destined historically to fail. Right. So it kind of puts you in the rights, and they are in the wrong. Right. So, um, but I don't think you know as much as it gets utilized nowadays. I, I can't imagine that there would be a, a contemporary prohibition, precisely because our understandings of freedom and liberty have changed, and that's kind of the, the big takeaway. The book, aside from the history that that we kind of dredge up uh, that we may not have known before, is this understanding that, hey, part of the reason that we can't understand temperance and prohibition is that not because of anything that they did, but it's our inability to understand it and our own understandings of freedom and liberty have changed dramatically over time, especially since World War II, uh, with Thatcherism in, in, in the UK and Reaganomics here in the United States. We now have this understanding that any impingement upon my economic freedom 
is necessarily an impingement upon my political freedom. And that was never the case before then, that those were very separate things uh, for people to understand. Um, but if you look at our founding documents, if you look at the Constitution, there's no right to buy anything. There's not a right to go drinking at a bar. There's not a right to go uh, get a haircut. But those are things that people say, you know, that's an infringement upon my constitutional rights that I can't get these sorts of things. It's like, no, that's not. Those are those are economic liberties that has nothing to do with your rights as a, as a citizen. You mentioned how this book had ended up taking you down research avenues that you didn't really expect or anticipate. I wonder to finish us off whether there was anything, um, maybe an anecdote or a surprising fact that you learned that you personally were most surprised to uncover during your research for this. Yeah, you know, there are a lot of little anecdotes. Yeah, those the little things like like Carrie Nation smashing things at seven in the morning. That was interesting. Uh, you know, finding sort of these these linkages between uh, different groups that we usually don't consider unless you take a global history, right? You, you don't see the the interlinkages between people in different countries and how they're, um, you know, how they're affected by one another. Um, and so, for instance, one of the great voices for temperance and prohibition in the United States was, um, uh, was William Jennings Bryan. Uh, you know, he ran for president three times in the United States, failed, but it was also sort of this voice of progressivism. Um, and you know, part of that was that he was a big follower of Leo Tolstoy in in, in Russia, um, and even went to to see him. And you know, they they talked all the time about you know these these sorts of things. And so, seeing sort of this kind of cross germination of ideas, um, you know, from from one group over here that they were in conversation that we usually don't see if we just take sort of a container history of the United States or a container history of, of British history or, or a container history of Russia, we don't get those linkages. Uh, and for me, that was the, the, the most rewarding thing was to see just how people are learning from others who we just, you know, we just don't see because we kind of shut ourselves off uh, in these sort of hermetically sealed, self-isolated versions of, uh, of our national histories rather than international and comparative histories. That was Mark Lawrence Schrad. His book, Smashing the Liquor Machine, A Global History of Prohibition, is out now published by OUP. And if you'd like to hear more about the implementation and impact of prohibition in the US specifically, then check out our Everything You Wanted to Know episode on the subject with the historian Timothy Hickman. Just search for the word prohibition in your podcast feed or at historyextra.com to bring that up. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.